Hello, I'm Annie Coops and this is the Leadership Quest podcast, where I seek out conversations with people who have an interesting perspective on leaders and leadership. So much has changed since these were recorded, but they're still brilliant insights. So if you want to think about leadership in these extraordinary times, they will be just right for you. In the meanwhile, be safe and stay well. Welcome to this episode of the Leadership Quest podcast, where I talk to Elaine Maxwell. For those of you who don't know Elaine, you're in for a treat. For those who do, you won't be surprised by her clarity and views on leadership with a particular focus on nursing. But don't be misled, there's something here for everyone. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Elaine. Hi, Anne. Nice to be here. It's lovely to have you um, here with me this afternoon and to talk to you. One of the first things that I like to do is to ask people about themselves and where they're talking to me from today. So can you tell me a little bit about you and where you are today? Oh, what about me? So that's a really hard thing to say because I I have multiple identities and I have to remember which one I'm using when I'm talking to people because... I've got a very strong sense of identity about being a nurse, but actually yeah. the current job I do, I'm not employed as a nurse. And so I have to remember that I'm there as a researcher. And um, and my current favourite identity is grandmother. So um, I come with lots of different hats. And I think my career has been a bit different to a lot of people. So I've had a lot of skipping about from different jobs. So I went into leadership jobs and then stopped doing them and wasn't a leader and um you know the job I'm in now I'm not the leader of the unit I'm in I'd like to think I'm I'd like to be seen as a thought leader rather than an organizational leader Uh, and I'm talking to you from the spare bedroom of my house like most people um which is just outside Oxford and of course we're um right at the um very beginning probably of the second wave of the COVID pandemic aren't we which is why I'm speaking at you from my um, home working environment too um, which is my office in West Yorkshire so your introduction to yourself then was quite intriguing really of course I know you most um, for being a nurse and I guess um, and somebody actually referred to both of us recently as iconoclasts, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, so for those, I think that we might have a few nurses who listen into this. Can you tell me a little bit more about your nursing leadership journey? Um, well, I, I think one of the things about me across everything is that I'm very curious about things. And that means I don't usually take the usual route. Um, one of the things I hate is groupthink. And I think there's a fine line between being curious and being loyal. And I think there's a lot of people in nursing who might think I'm at times being disloyal. Uh, but I would counter that I'm just challenging the groupthink. So my my nursing career, so I started my training way back in 1977, a good old-fashioned SRN, trained at the local hospital, loved it for a long time, would identify myself not just as a nurse, but as a UCH nurse. And that's come full circle because I'm now editor of the UCH London Nurses Charity magazine, and I'm just just putting this year's magazine to bed. 
Uh, so I did various sort of clinical roles after that, moved around quite a lot, as I think we did in those days. Um, went and worked in the community, worked in ITU. Um, but then my curiosity took me to do a degree. And rather than doing a degree in nursing, so I think this is my first foray outside the usual, um, I decided to do applied social sciences with health visiting. Um, and that was very, that was transformative for me because I'd learned about nursing from nurses and I'd got a very set view. Then I went and did applied social sciences, so that was social policy, psychology and sociology. And I really enjoyed it, but it completely changed my outlook on everything. Uh, and I was lucky enough to work um, with a health visiting team who were quite radical, actually. It was all about community action. And my job was um, not necessarily to go and weigh babies, but to actually look at community assets and help them to help themselves. Uh, and from that, I went on to a job working for what was then called a family practitioner committee for Staffordshire, for the whole of Staffordshire. And my job was working on a project based out of Oxford to try and create well men clinics in primary care. So this is you know, just at the time people were starting to realise cholesterol and blood pressure were important. Uh, so that was a fascinating job, um, working, as I say, with a wide range of general practices in Staffordshire. And from then I actually, again, because I was curious about how change happened, I then went to work for uh, Birmingham Dental School which was trying to do something similar to what we've done with general medical practitioners, with gentle, general dental practitioners. So the, the dentist contract was about to change from a fee from item to a per capita. And, uh, you know, that, that was a bit of a change in the model. So again, I had a whole area, I had the whole of Dudley to work with. Uh, and so I used to drive around getting lost in Cradley Heath and other places in the black country. Um, trying to work with general practice about how how you could make change that would improve healthcare. Um, so I did this for a while, uh, and then I went back to nursing. I have to say, partly for pragmatic reasons, because by this time I'd got small children and I couldn't be travelling all over the country, and I went back to intensive care. Uh, so I worked as a, an F grade junior sister in Derby Royal Infirmary. Um, and then I went to work at Midstaffs, uh, which at the time was a fairly new hospital. In fact, they it, it was opened as a new hospital and then they had an outbreak of legionnaires. Uh, so it, it's had a number of problems in its time. But that was a radical um, departure because the the director of nursing at the time had decided he wanted to have research practitioners. So he'd appointed Anne McMahon, who you may know was the advisor to the RCN for a long time, as the um, assistant director of nursing for research. And she had she recruited three of us uh, to work on research and quality improvement. And that was really quite a radical thing to do. Um, and so I had the opportunity just to go around the trust saying, you know, what do we want to look at? What sort of research should we should be doing? And this sort of melded in with quality improvement, which was just coming in. And, and for me, although I did later go on to do a PhD and do some research, I am much more interested in the pragmatic end of how do you use research? Uh, and the job I have now is actually, I like to call myself a knowledge broker. So rather than generating academic 
research that sits on a shelf and isn't understood in practice, isn't used in practice, I'm actually much more interested in saying there are different types of evidence, there's practical wisdom from professionals, there's the lived experience and there's academic research. How do we meld all those together to actually make an improvement? Uh, so I think I started that journey in mid-staffs. Um, so then I, I moved down to the West Country, worked in Somerset um, with Liz Robb, who later went on to be the chief executive of the Prince Nightingale Foundation. Um, and I started there as senior nurse for quality and went through various iterations of titles. And that was really interesting because I can remember as I became more senior being told uh, by a number of people that you'll never get to be a director of nursing if you don't take a general manager post. And I said, well, I don't, I'll never be a director of nursing then because I don't want to be a general manager. It's not what I'm interested in. You know, it's an important job, but it's not for me. So I trundled down my quality research route and I became um, the lead that I can't remember what the title was, but it was the lead for clinical governance. And um, actually with a consultant, Jonathan Sheffield, who went on to become um, the director of um, the NIHR Clinical Research Network. So we set up clinical governance when it came. And I thought I would be doing that sort of work forever. And I was quite happy there. I had no particular um, ambitions to do anything different. Not at that stage, anyhow. And then, as often happens, serendipitously, you know, things happen. And uh, Liz got the opportunity to be the acting chief exec. And I got the opportunity to be the acting director of nursing. Um, so I got a chance to test out this job that I never thought I'd be eligible for because I hadn't been a general manager. And whilst I was doing it, the post of director of nursing came up in Dorchester, which was actually closer to where I lived. I lived in Dorset, not in Somerset. And in the sort of gung-ho attitude that I have, it's like, well, give it a go. What have you got to lose? The worst that can happen is that they don't appoint you. Uh, I applied for it and was appointed. Uh, and I worked there for five years as, as the director of nursing. And I was also responsible for what was then called personnel. So the head of personnel reported to me. So there was a lot of new learning going on there as well. And I still had clinical governance and uh, a few other things. Um, and whilst I was working there, I was approached by headhunters um, to say, would I consider going to work at Barking Havering Redbridge in northeast London? Because I was a bit naive. I thought, oh, this is flattering. <laughs> Didn't realise that. <laughs> But sometimes it means it's a difficult job. Uh, so I went to Barking, Havering, Redbridge, a huge trust, eight different sites, uh, population is three quarters of a million. Um, lots of challenges because not being a teaching hospital and being on the outer edges of London actually was more problematic than being a country hospital down in Dorset. I think there's some real challenges around the outer London trusts that, that are not recognised. And and I I find it a little bit difficult when the directs of nursing of the very well-resourced teaching hospitals are given prominence because they've got more staff, more money, more... It's easier to attract good staff. You know, it, it's an unpopular thing to say, but I think it might be an easier job to do than to go to one of these large failing trusts. Um, uh, and so I worked there for three years and then I had a sudden rush of blood to the head and it comes back to this thing about me being curious. Went off and did a PhD at, you know, a very late age. Well, at the same time as you were director of nursing, of course. Sorry? At the same time as you were a director of nursing, uh, we... 
no, no, I, I left my director of nursing post. No, I'm not quite that stupid. <laughs> I, uh, I managed to... Um, I managed to get a job at London South Bank University. So David Sines, who's another interesting um, nurse leader, asked me if I would come and work with them because I'd been having meetings with him about why we hadn't fulfilled our education contracts. And I kept saying, because you're not offering the courses we want. You know, this is a time which the workforce commissions um, would buy so many places and they'd say, congratulations, you've got 80 diabetes courses. And you'd say, well, I don't want them. What I actually want is something else. And they'd say, well, tough. Um, so I went to work at the university advising them on, on what sort of educational courses um, Drexel Nursing might be interested in buying and doing my PhD at the same time. Uh, and that was... That was another bit like doing, I'd done a master's degree after my first degree, but I think the two that really changed the way I thought were firstly the, my first degree uh, and then doing my PhD, because it really made me start to think about how do we understand things um, and how how can you make sure that you can rely on what you're being told and um, you know be really rigorous about your understanding of things. So that was really, I suppose, the end of my formal nursing career. I, I then went on to have jobs at the Health Foundation as the lead for patient safety and went to teach leadership at London South Bank. And I now work for the National Institute of Health Research, um, as I say, as a knowledge breaker. I think um, your conversation there about your journey is a really interesting one. I think... For those people out there who um, are nurses who think that there's not diversity of choice in our profession, I think you're a great illustration, as possibly I am too, actually, of how much choice there is and how you can play out nursing roles in many, many, many different places. And I think, I think it would be unfair of me not to ask you, Elaine, as well, in addition to that, um, what you did back in April and May of this yeah. year. Um, so, so you're telling me that you sort of have evolved away from nursing and then tell everybody what you did back then. So I joined the temporary register. So I had left the nursing register a year ago because I was working in a job that didn't require me to do a nurse, to be a nurse and wasn't focused on nursing. Uh, but when it was clear that the pandemic was going to cause huge problems uh, and there was talk about opening the temporary register, it took me about five seconds to decide I was going to rejoin this register um i suppose compared with some people i was still very much in touch with the nhs and i was still working so i still had a level of confidence about being able to work and i had been an itu sister and got the itu course albeit 30 years ago and i thought well you know i'm i'm not easily phased i have some understanding of this i know the processes you know, anything I can do to help, you know, just go and be a runner, um, then I'll do. So actually, yes, for May and April, I worked um, as a band five staff nurse in an intensive care unit, which was also very interesting, because when you go back to that sort of role again, having had so many different roles in between, you really look at it with different eyes, really. What did you notice, Elaine? So, um, I 
it was very different from when I worked there before. The nature of the workforce is very different. You know, a huge number of overseas nurses. I mean, I, I sort of knew that with my head, but actually finding myself working there with people from, you know, all countries. This country really depends on, on nurses from overseas. Um, I did wonder about some of the communication across all of the grades. I mean, it was obviously a very busy, very difficult time. I, I didn't actually get into the intensive care for the first six weeks. I was in theatres and recovery looking after ventilated patients with COVID because they'd expanded, you know, they'd more than doubled the number of beds. Um, I think looking at what nursing is, although Although a lot of the treatments have changed and the ventilators look very different, they look like little iPads. You know, I was expecting a big washing machine, Cape 2000 ventilator, and I kept saying, where's the ventilator? And they said over there, and I could just see this little screen. And, yeah, I can see the iPad, where's the ventilator? Um, but actually, uh, for me, you know, the, the similarities were it's, it's all about the patients. And one of the things that was very difficult was I didn't know the patients. Normally in ITU, even if your patients are ventilated, you have relatives and they bring in pictures and stories. So you have a sense of the personality that you're caring for. It was really challenging um, working with bodies that didn't seem to be humans um, because you didn't know anything about them. And I think that when I look back about what was difficult for me, it wasn't actually the technical stuff. You know, you can you can read up about things. There's, you know, unlike some of the ward areas, there are a lot of stuff about. So actually, the technical aspects didn't worry me, but the emotional labour of of working with these people that you didn't know as people, and one of the saddest things was talking to relatives. You know, you didn't know them either because normally you know the relatives really well. And, you know, they just wanted you to give them hope and you couldn't and you couldn't see them and you didn't know them. And, you know, I personally felt quite, well, very traumatised by that. And I hope in this round people give much more thought to the emotional labour that nurses are going through. Not necessarily their stress, but the emotional labour of the changed nature of nursing. Uh, and I know that it's also difficult for relatives and patients that they haven't got that connection. I think I'm going a little bit off leadership now. No, no, no. I, I think I'm going to ask you a connection, a connection back to leadership, a question that um, I think you um, feel passionately about, which is about, do you think that the nature of leadership now in amongst all of this is the same leadership as we had two years ago, three years ago, 10 years ago, do you think what we need at any given time is the same skills? No. So I, 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 I have a problem with the idea that, A, you're a born leader. You know, one of the things that really annoys me are these, fill in this questionnaire and find out what sort of a leader you are. Because if you're only a one-trick pony, you're a pretty awful leader. Leaders need to have different styles, different tools in their kit back for different times and approaching leadership of a hospital during a real surge of admissions like this needs very very different skills from the skills in the summer of a, a year when you're doing quite well and you're meeting your targets and I, I think there wasn't enough attention given to leadership in general at the start of this pandemic and and you know from my experience as a nurse 
don't get me wrong, I absolutely recognise that everybody was working hard and was exhausted and was doing their best. So I'm not necessarily saying, I'm not criticising individuals, but I do think there was not enough attention given to how are we going to look after people. So another example from my experience in intensive care is they were just flooded with temporary workers. You know, there were people like me from random organisations that, you know, they didn't understand. Uh, There were people coming in through NHSP. There were staff redeployed from uh, areas that had been um, suspended. Uh, There were ODPs. There were just such a medley, an uncertain medley of people that they didn't know from very different jobs and different experience. And there was a lot of reliance on the junior substantive staff to manage us. So I did one shift, one night shift, where we had um, quite a junior staff nurse in charge of our little pod. And, um, you know, I really felt for him because he was trying to manage us. He didn't know us. He was stressed about being in a sort of team leader position in the first place. And yet it wasn't even with people that he understood uh, so I think a lot more thought has to be given in to how you lead in an emergency. And, you know, the, the classic example is, you know, Winston Churchill was a great leader in the war, terrible leader in peacetime. And there has to be this recognition of different skills. The other thing I'd say is, I think you have to think about who you're leading. And because of different socialisation and different identity, Leading doctors is very different from leading nurses, from leading AHPs or anybody else. So I think attention needs to be given both to the climate in which you're leading, whether it's a you know, pandemic, an emergency or normal times, who you're leading, but also what you're trying to achieve. Because the other variable is, are you trying to do what you're currently doing the best you can? Or are you trying to make stepways change? And again, I think the leadership there are different skills. There's a lot of debate, I think, about whether, well, there is certainly in social media environments about this idea about leadership development, leadership education, and whether we actually require all nurses, for example, to be leaders. What's your view about that? Well, you know, that whole debate I've seen as well, all makes this assumption that it's one homogenous blancmange. So I think there are things that are needed by different people at different parts of their career, but we have to recognise them. One of, one of my concerns about that debate, and one of the things I used to say when I was teaching leadership, was I'm worried that we're setting people up to fail. So if you tell a student nurse they can be leaders and they can change the world, and they come smack up against you know the organizational bureaucracy where they have no positional authority um we are actually doing them more harm than good so people have to be aware of the extent and the limits of their area of influence and once they've understood that think about well how do you lead in that situation is it all about thought leadership because you have no positional authority to change things? Or is it because you're in a position where you do have that authority changes and you have access to resources and you can use legitimate authority to make rules that have to be obeyed? And, and that's the other thing. Leadership does mean exercising some of that management and positional authority. It's not all about, you know, 
even you know the the people who invented um transformational leadership didn't say that it was all about inspiring people there were other tools as well and sometimes you have to tell people this is how it's going to be even if they don't like it um the other challenge though that i would say about nursing sitting where i am now outside nursing is nursing is nursing is very inward looking you know, I go to a lot of meetings now where there are no nurses in the room and I'm not going as a nurse, so I'm not there to represent nursing. Nursing, there are certain leadership positions which need to be much more outward facing and saying, what are other people thinking about us? How can I communicate to other people what the contribution that nursing could make is? So absolutely very different I think um, Stacey Johnson, I'm sure you know Stacey. Mm. Stacey in her podcast talks about, um, she talks about something that I think is quite different, which is about leadership behaviour. She talks about being leaderly as a as an approach and a mentality towards the way that you do your work, I think. It could be how you run your life, but uh, um, how you do your work. And I think that's possibly um, more accessible for um, people who are less... Um, senior in their positions um, in, in nursing because they're less likely that way to bang up against, they're less likely to be crashing against the power um, high, of hierarchy in organisations. What do you think about leaderly behaviours as opposed to leadership? I think I would probably also say that differs from, that that would differ according to your position or your ambition. So, um Leaderly behaviour sometimes means making a decision. You know, sometimes any decision is better than none. Um, but sometimes it means actually giving other people the opportunity to make the decision. Um, I, I think... So, so for me, one of the characteristics of a good leader is to be open to new ideas. So I suppose leisurely behaviour would be always having an open mind, always being prepared to consider really quite left field things and not reject them out of hand. And being curious. And being curious. And uh, the being curious comes back to looking at what the evidence is. And, and for me, evidence isn't just research evidence, but it's a very large part of it. Um, I... I'd, I I think it, you know, it's it's being able to do an assessment of where you are and what needs to be, how you need to behave to be effective where you are at this moment in time. That's important. I worry, I worry a little bit about our expectation of people who, in whatever profession, actually, not just nursing, but nursing is my background, as you know. Um, that we have this expectation of them to be um, leaders and leaderly all of the time when they're coming into perhaps a new environment to do new work that they've never done before. And I just wonder whether it, why it isn't just okay for people to just be really good at what they do and just to deliver really good care. So why do we have this overlaid expectation that everybody should want to be a leader? No, I... I... I agree with that. I think that one of the challenges is valuing people for the care they do with patients, because actually the rest of us 
are just trying to facilitate that interface with the patient. So they really are the the really most important people. And it's it's disappointing that everybody assumes they have to move away from that as quickly as possible into some sort of other role. I think I think there's a possibly a blurring between professional and leaderly behaviour. So I would like all staff of any profession, or you know, all people really, to behave in a professional way. But if we're talking particularly about healthcare, we would expect health professionals to recognise that they are in this role as a profession, not as an individual. And there are some professional behaviours that we would expect everybody to adhere to. Whether they all have to be leaders is is a separate question and and I agree with you they don't all have to be leaders in fact there's a really interesting strand of research on um, leadership by um, OBN and and others in the states which is about followership so you know I, I don't think leadership is invested in an individual leadership is a product of your relationship with your followers and so you're not a leader you're somebody in a relationship that produces leadership and that relationship changes and that very much fits with what I was saying earlier about it depends on who you're leading, what the purpose is, what the climate around it is. And But if you don't pay attention to leaders and if you don't have good, uh, sorry, if you don't pay attention to followers and if you don't have good followership behaviour, then you don't get anywhere either. So, you know, those of us who've had senior jobs like you, we, we know that actually sometimes our deputies are the key people and, and they're often underestimated. There's an assumption that if you're in a deputy director role, you must want to go on to be a director. And uh, some of the advice I sometimes give to people is why on earth would you want to do that? You know, you're being really effective in this role and you enjoy it. And if you go on to be a director, that's a completely different role. You won't do... People assume that when you become a director, you do what you're doing now, but with a bit more authority. And that's absolutely not what it is in most roles. You're doing a very different job. But I'm interested in, um, in what you're saying. You're the first person, I think, who's talked about professionalism in this context, sort of alongside leadership. So I've had many conversations around the management and leadership. Um, but not many around professionalism and leadership. And I think you did some work, didn't you, around professionalism in nursing? I did. So I was on the group that was actually led by Charlotte McArdle, the Chief Nursing Officer for Northern Ireland, and she did this on behalf of all the four CNOs in the UK with the NMC to look at enabling professionalism. And it it really is about understanding what the behaviours of the profession should be and every individual member of the profession. And that goes back really to, well, what do you think you're trying to achieve? It's it's really interesting because in medicine, the people that are perceived to be leaders are not necessarily the people in leadership sessions within an organisation. And they don't necessarily think becoming a director or a manager is a promotion. Because for them, their focus is professionalism. Whereas for nurses, uh, if you chose to stay at a band seven and be a professional leader and professional thought leader, that wouldn't be considered to be an aspirational role for others. 
And I think that has given us a skew in nursing into being this new managerialism that, that actually it becomes a managerial role rather than a professional leadership role. I, I, I was brought up, as many people who listen to the podcast will be fed up of hearing about in the, in the 1980s when general management was fashionable, actually, and we were all told that in order to aspire, in order to be somebody who could influence care, general management was the route. Um, and what I think we're left with is the overhang of um, general management is how you um, are rewarded, actually. So, so salary enhancement, et cetera, tends to come with um, management responsibility as opposed to professional responsibility. There are some roles where they're professional leadership and are rewarded, but I think that's less easy to pursue than a career in general management still, um, which I think is a shame, actually. I think it is. And it's, so we do need really good general managers. And um, it, certainly it, David Oliver talks about why are so many CEOs former nurses uh, and, and not former doctors. And, and you know, there may be something about the, the whole way that the profession has pivoted that makes nurses more able to become um, general managers. I mean, there was an interesting study by Jane Robinson, actually, in the 80s when the Griffiths reforms came out. And she said that um, there was a certain, you know, tranche of senior nurses all took early retirement at 50 when those changes came in so nursing was left leadership uh, leaderless uh for a number of years and and general management went into that vacuum so it yeah. wasn't necessarily an intention to take over nursing it was just a vacuum that's created by all those early retirements which i think is is probably true but i think there's a, also this issue of thought leadership and that is critical, you know, coming back to my concept of leadership being bit about being curious and open to new ideas. We need people who will think different things. And it takes some time to be able to read things and percolate them and creating that space for people and funding roles in which people have that time and space to think and think differently are a key part of leadership because we'll carry on trying to do the same things because we haven't got the imagination to do something different if we don't have thought leaders as well. Is that is that then um, where you see the future for leadership in, in our profession in, in the space of thought leadership? Well, I, I, I think you need all types of leaders, but I think that is a, a gaping hole. Okay. Um, I, I think that, you know, if, if people are... So, somebody was telling me the other day about, um, about the uh, NHS England uh, press conference that was done earlier this week, and apparently a journalist asked Ruth May a question and apologised because he was asking her about the science uh, and I thought, oh dear, we've got a long way to go if, if you know, yeah. you think that nurses are doers. And actually I saw a, a tweet um, yesterday where Sarah Beanie was saying that doctors prescribe care and nurses deliver it. I think, well, you can sort of understand why people who are not nurses don't understand what we do for two reasons. One is because we're so internally focused on telling ourselves how wonderful we are. And and secondly, because we're not the ones who are coming up with the thought pieces and the opinion pieces and not people who are influencing ministers. You know, if, if 
a minister wants to think about doing something different, they'll pull together a round table of people. How many times is there a nurse on there? I I think it's possibly fair to say that um, you're one of the people who is seen as um, a more radical nurse in the system, somebody who has a voice, somebody who speaks things that other people might think but not, not say. Um, how does that make you feel? And um, if you had a magic wand, therefore, and could... Um, change things in the way that you would like them to be changed what would that look like well starting with how does it make me feel sometimes it's very lonely it was the point I started off with saying there's you know there's a fine line between being curious and being loyal I know that there are a lot of people in the nursing community in the UK particularly directors of nursing who think that I'm beyond the pale because I've criticised and I never criticise individual. well, with a few exceptions. I don't usually criticise individuals. I criticise systems. But the people who are in them are quite fragile and take it as personal criticism, even if it wasn't intended that way. So it can be lonely and it can be challenging. I think one of the reasons I can do it and one of the reasons you can do it is because we it wouldn't be career limiting. I think it's quite hard for nurses in the NHS to speak out. A lot of anxiety about what the consequences of saying anything that actually you and I wouldn't even worry about because it's so non-controversial. And other people in the NHS, you know, you look at the sort of opinion pieces that chief execs and medics and and increasingly AHPs are doing, then they're not feeling threatened by it. Um, But I think it's nurses who gag other nurses, not others. Uh, I think there is a lack of confidence in the profession. So the idea of making any criticism of it is seen as, you know, letting the side down. So we shouldn't do it because if we criticise ourselves, then other people go there. I told you so. But it does make us rather stagnant. So what would I like to see change? I would like to see much more vigorous debate. So when I was at London South Bank University, I set up a series of debates and I used to say to people, I want to make this the Oxford Union of Nursing and they would laugh, but I was serious. I wanted to create somewhere where you would actively encourage people to come and debate different sides of an argument. That was one of the really great things I did about my my degree back in um, in the 80s is you know it was before there were were huge numbers of people going to university so we used to have seminars and tutorials but we also used to debates and they would pick a subject that they knew you didn't agree with and say right you're arguing for this motion you know it's a really good intellectual exercise to argue for something you don't agree with because then you really understand the argument so I would like to see some sort of um some sort of organisation that hosts these. And I I don't think it would be hard to do. I mean, we did a a number of quite successful ones at Southbank. I would want to make sure that there were opportunities for people to be promoted that weren't based on operational management. Because essentially, I hear people say, why is it graded at this level? They only manage 20 staff. And I think, why has the number of people you manage got anything to do with your pay grade? or your apparent seniority. It's, you know... That's a handbook from union negotiation in the 1990s when we had... um, Gender for change. Change, yeah. 
So, but, but it's really held but it's really held us back because actually what are we here for we we who work in the health service are here to improve people's health when we're not here to manage people that's that is a way to the final product it's not the end in itself being able to manage people and corral them all to agree with you is not an end in itself what I'm hearing from you is really interesting. So, so I, I, I see you as a leader. I would ask you whether you thought you were, but I think you are a professional leader. Um, whether you were on the register or not, I think that for me was barely relevant. Um, and I, I mean, I'm interested that um, all you're asking for really is a space for us to think out loud collectively and to raise our knowledge, understanding and thinking around what we do, how we do it, how we learn from things, how we look outside and not just internally focus. And I don't think that's too big an ask. Um, and you can't be the only person who thinks that that might be a good thing to do. So why is it then um, that we, we're unable to shift how we think? What is it as a profession that stops us? I, well, I think we're not, I think you're right. A lot of us would like to do that. And Another interesting thing about going back and working as a Band 5 staff nurse, that one of the really positive things was seeing just how many bright, curious, questioning people there are and having, you know, fabulous conversations with people. Um, so it's not a shortage of people who want to do it. I think we haven't organised ourselves into a critical mass to do it. So um, at the risk of being a little controversial... I did actually suggest to the RCN that they would be well-placed to run a debate series and a bid was put forward to the RCN Foundation and they turned it down. Um, I lament the times when the college did a lot of professional leadership. I remember them well. Uh, I remember yeah. the Institute used to do amazing research and, and they were thought leading. Um, I did actually leave the RCN after more than 40 years membership after the last EGM. I think they're not, for whatever reason, in the place to lead, to do the professional leadership, although many of their members will disagree with me, I know, and I'm just waiting for all the response to this podcast on Twitter. Um, but in the absence of the RCN doing it, I don't know who else is going to do it. Uh, so everybody's looking for somebody else to do it. Um, I think there's a lot of elder states people, and by that I actually mean elder states women. You know, people like you and I, and, you know, there was a group of us who had a conversation at the beginning of COVID about how we could help and do things differently. Um, and I think that should be that should be used. And And again, if I go back to the medical profession... They have these very well-established Royal Medical Colleges that are well-funded and, you know, for all sorts of reasons, you know, they go back, you know, the Royal College of Physicians goes back to 15-something or other. So they're a different starting point. But they use their elder. Yeah. They have, you yeah. know, they, they have a capacity to still contribute. I don't know how people who've retired, who've amassed 40 or more years of experience can help with the leadership of the profession because there isn't anywhere to do that. And I, I think that's another element of good leadership is is to to have wise people 
Yeah, and a lot of people refer to it as eldership, don't they? And, and yeah. they, um, leave it eldership for benefit for everybody. So I see pockets of it happening. I see um, individual examples where, you know, people come to me to men- for mentorship and I'm sure they come to you for the same. And, you know, so I see pockets of that, but it's not, um, it's not, not structured very well, I think, for us as a view, actually, um, that for you, leadership is not a static thing. Um, it's not, it, it's, it's a fluid thing, um, but it's linked to, um, you, you're linking it to management and professionalism, but you're not saying it's the same thing. No, um, so I, I think, I think it is different. I think we need all of those things. So one of the things I hate is when people say, you know, I'm a leader, not a manager. And I think, oh, well, you don't understand anything, do you? You need both. You need good leadership and good management. It's and, and not or, or, um, one of the things I'm struck about, just thinking about the American election recently. So Joe Biden is, you know, a man of the right time. He's he's a man who, because of his experience and all the jobs he's had before and all the connections he's got across Republicans and Democrats and his relationships across the world, is absolutely the best placed person at the time. And most of that is based on his history and his experience not on the policy new fangled policies and so you know it's it's really important to look at that as well as current leadership and current leadership development i think the other thing that is quite striking and people have been talking a lot about is leadership in the digital space which you will know more about than me but but i don't mean in terms of designing digital electronic records i mean using it so Donald Trump got to be president because he understood how to use digital media for leadership, for good or ill. And that's the other thing to remember is leadership can be for good or for ill. It's it's a value neutral thing. Uh, it depends who sees it and uses it. And I wonder what we're doing in, you know, because of COVID, we're now having this conversation on Zoom, whereas last year we probably have done it in person. And, and now I'm in lockdown in my spare bedroom and I live alone, so you know. Other than going to the supermarket, I, all my connection is digital. What are we doing about digital? What are we doing about using digital for leadership? I remember um, having a conversation um, with Susan Hamer, who we both know and love. And and Susan, um, Susan's an edge person. I think you and I are both edge leaders. We lead from the edge of systems rather than at the centre of systems. And Susan does the same. And she once said to me. I'm telling you, Anne, my prediction is that one day nurses will nurse and they will never be in the same room as the patient that they're nursing. And I remember the shock and horror on the other faces that were in the room at the time. Um, And I was reflecting on that the other day and thinking, yes, here and here we are in my lifetime, just when I'm, I'm still in my career, really at a time when many, many nurses are going to work in front of a computer and then nursing down using technology. And it is still nursing, is my view. Um, but it isn't the same version of nursing that we were talking about 20 years ago. It would have been her- her- heretic. Uh, you'd have been a heretic to, to have talked about you know nursing without being in the same room. Um, so I think there is a space for alternative um 
leaders who lead us into new spaces. It's it's not about it, it it's not about leading everybody through the same channel that everybody's already going down. It's about leading off and leading out of that channel into new spaces. And I think that's what you're alluding to actually in that space. And and I it, actually leading in the digital space has been one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I never intended to be when I set out in my career I didn't think I'm going to be a leader in digital that was never my ambition I didn't even know what I wanted to do then but it was one of the hardest things I ever did leading at the edge I think is another interesting area of thinking around leadership you and I have both do I, I'm running a, a women's leadership program currently in, in, in digital and you ran the leadership program um, for nurses who aspired to be nurse directors didn't you at South did. Bank yeah. what, what's the role then it's so so we've talked about all of these different flavors of leadership about it being contextual around situation around outcome then where's the place for leadership development in all of that so we, so yes, yeah, so um, NHS Improvement funded us to run a postgraduate certificate in, in leadership. And it was, you know, it was contested and doesn't seem to exist now, seems to have gone back into generic uh, NHS leadership programmes. The place for us was that it was very targeted at a very specific role. It was for people who were within three years of being appointed to a director of nursing. So everything I've just said now about understanding the context, the audience, the purpose, this was a very bespoke programme for a very small group of people, but highly influential people. And I think it worked well because of that. I mean, it it was interesting when we interviewed um, the candidates. So the first year we interviewed, a lot of them were quite alarmed because they did their, their application form in the way they normally would and they they thought we were going to give them some sort of psychometric testing, which we didn't. And what we did was we said, um, here's the proposal for the nursing associates. Um, can you write a one page briefing for your board saying what are the strengths and weaknesses and implications of this? And they all thought that was horrendous thing to have been asked to do. It was so outside their experience of leadership development. And there were people who had done MBAs, there were people who'd done um, all all the uh, leadership programmes at the Leadership Academy. And, and it had all been focused on me. What's my personal style? What do I like doing? What are my personal attributes? And we said, well, you know, directs of nursing come in all shapes and sizes. And that's a good thing, actually. We don't want Stepford wives who all fit the same profile. What we want to think about is how can you think and how can you understand what your role at the board is because you you don't go to the board as the manager of 3000 nurses you go as an equal member of the board to talk about all the issues that affect the organization and your role is to say i've got a view on all of this and i've got a specialist knowledge on how nursing can help us with this challenge and problem and so it was a very targeted program I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, well, they all said they liked it, but maybe they just wouldn't tell me to my face that they hated it. But, um, you know, there's a high number of those students who went on to be directors of nursing. Now, how much that course helped them, I don't know. But we also ran it in Northern Ireland. And again, there's a number of people who've gone on to senior positions having done that because it was about a particular job. And I think I would rather see it broken down and accept that it's it's a heterogeneous concept 
And depending on which leadership role you're doing, you need different development. So Kirsty Stott in her podcast talks about, she used to work at the Leadership Academy, and she talks about the job of leadership, and, and she you know she, she runs the Shadow Board program currently, and she talks about actually, in order to hold some of these leadership positions, because there are leadership positions, yeah. you have have a set of skills a certain set of skills that enable you to deliver in in that type of job so i think you're saying broadly the same thing actually so yeah and but but i you know that was preparing to be an executive director i think if i was well i have done um, run programs for ward managers and i would run those very differently the content would be completely different um well, I, I agree with you on my programs for example we specifically um, look at women and power um, very specifically um, and it's not it's slightly controversial and you know we talk about um, women who um, have to run families at the same time as um, going to work every day so it is it can become slightly controversial I think when you're targeting in the way that you're describing but that's the I mean it's the wrong thing to do. No I, I think the whole issue about women is really interesting because it's definitely true that you know, if you're a woman, you're assertive, you're bossy. If you're a man and assertive, you're a good leader. Um, the other thing I've talked before about, I talked on one of the HSJ Women Leaders podcasts about um, about the different styles people have and they're not being a correct one. So I have worked with some amazing female leaders who are introverts. Uh, and, you know, this is absolutely not what I am. But but I can see that if you are a woman and an introvert and then if you throw nursing in, you know, that really counts against you. And you, you have to have strategies for dealing with the stereotype of a leader who is somebody at the front who, you know, is speaking out and everybody is looking at your charismatic leadership. And some of the most effective leaders don't work that way. And for women, because of the prejudice that there are, and there still are, uh, they have to find ways of coping with that, don't they? And I'm, I'm sure, you know, you have a lot of those on your programme. We do. And so, so we're coming towards the end, I think. So I want to ask you a couple of questions first. The first question I'd like to ask you is, do you see yourself as a leader still, Elena? I've no doubt that you have been in leadership roles, but today, are you a leader? No, I don't see myself as a leader. Um, I think what I'm increasingly seeing myself now is moving into that elder space where I'm saying, well, yes, I've had a very wide range of jobs and experience. And, you know, I've had the executive leadership role. I've had a non-executive leadership role. You know, I've, I've had... Uh, associate professor role in the university and now I'm sitting in a, a place where I'm trying to bring all that experience together and say that how do you make sense of all those different experiences and how can I not exactly coach but how can I encourage the people who are in those leadership positions now to think about things differently so you're right there are a number of people you know often people that I taught on the leadership programs who will come and talk to me about their jobs or about jobs they're thinking of going for. And and I'm always trying to get them to think laterally about it. And the other thing that I say to them is, you know, if you've been shortlisted, you can do the job. So if you don't get it, you're not a failure. The question is, are you a fit? 
And why would you want to work there if you're not a fit? Because you'll only be miserable. You know, I think getting to the stage I am now, I have realised that being happy and content is an essential part of being a leader. If you're an angry leader, then that's not very effective. And I've been an angry leader, as people who work for me will tell you. And then um, if I, if you were to advise me about, so I see this, um, the, all of these conversations are just a journey for me, really, um, of exploration. Who would you talk to? Who would you have a conversation with if you were me? Uh, oh, that's a really interesting question. So, um, so I'm going to recommend somebody who has a really interesting place, Julie Store, uh, who started like, well, still probably does describe herself as an infection control nurse, but then went to work for the WHO. And she's in a really interesting international space. And she's at, at the edge. I mean, the, one of the things she's doing now, she's put together a, a letter about how we treat people in care homes and how the restrictions on visiting are inhumane. So she's she is really interesting about her leadership without being in a formal leadership position. And ever since I first met her when I was at the Health Foundation, I've had always had huge respect for everything she said. So I think she'd be a good person to talk to. That would be amazing. And and finally, Lynn, just it, just for me to say thank you to you for your time. But also, if people want to contact you, how would they find you? Well, probably the easiest thing is on Twitter, till I delete my account. <laughs> uh, so, at Maxwelly2. Um, yeah, this is probably the best way to contact me. I am on LinkedIn somewhere, and I will occasionally see things there. They can definitely find you on Twitter, can't they? They certainly can. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you'd like to comment, please tweet me. I'm at Annie Coops. I'll leave a comment on leadershipquest.net. We'd love to hear from you and love to hear your thoughts on the topics that we're discussing.